Hi everyone, welcome to HR Works, brought to you by BLR. I'm your host, Steve Bruce. HR Works provides clear, relevant, actionable information on topics that matter to HR professionals. When you're armed with best practices and strategies to attract, retain, and engage top talent and deliver exceptional value to your organization, HR works. So there's no shortage of reminders these days that harassment is still a major issue for employers. And it's particularly challenging when, as we've seen all too often lately in the news, when an executive is a harasser or when a company culture implicitly condones or perpetuates sexual harassment or a hostile work environment. So what can HR managers do? We've invited employment law attorney Mark Schickman to help us wrangle with this challenge. And I'll, I'll just note that this is one of our series of podcasts being recorded live at BLR's Advanced Employment Issues Symposium in Las Vegas, where Mark, a partner at Freeland Cooper and Foreman LLP in San Francisco, just presented to an audience of HR professionals on the topic of the link between company culture and harassment claims. Mark has been practicing employment and labor law for 40 years. He has successfully litigated almost every type of employment case. He provides employment advice to employers across the country. He speaks and writes on litigation and employment law nationally. And Mark is a member of the American Arbitration Association's Select Panel of Employment Law Arbitrators and is the editor of BLR's California Employment Law Letter. Mark, welcome to HR Works. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So, in recent years, the EEOC says the number of private sector charges, including harassment claims, rose significantly and accounted for more than 30% of all charges filed. So do you have any reasons why we've seen such a significant increase in these types of claims? Well, sex harassment and sex discrimination has always been uh, one of the highest categories of EEOC charges. And it's always kept a very high percentage. On an absolute level, the number of charges have increased significantly this year. Um, And I think that there's at least two different bases for it. Um, There are a number of charges that used to be categorized uh, as dealing with uh, gender orientation, which are now being characterized as being harassment, sex harassment claims. So that's one of the reasons. And I think we're seeing more empowerment for people to come forward. This operates in cycles. And um, as I say, the number of charges themselves uh, has remained at a high level in terms of the percentage of which is the highest category. I mean, just by way of example, um, following 9-11, you saw a huge spike with regard to national origin discrimination charges. So it reflects what's happening in society generally when you see it. And this is a year that's had a lot of activity with regard to sexual harassment. Yes, indeed. Thanks for that. So what are some of the symptoms of a workplace culture that uh, should raise a yellow flag or maybe a red flag for HR uh, that harassment is uh, practiced uh, at a company or tolerated? So first of all, I think that in 
HR professional, the HR organization, needs to really go around and have its finger on the pulse of what is happening on the workplace floor. There's a whole lot that you will be able to figure out if you just keep your eyes open in terms of what is going on, um, in, in terms of, of whether there are red flags, number one. Number two, uh, if you do see executives who engage in harassing behavior, you can be pretty sure that that's flowing to middle-level managers and it's flowing to supervisors. It's just the natural state of things that you see a great deal. So um, if you get pushback from your organization that charges of harassment should not be taken seriously, I think that it is a major red flag. Most people know what the rules are. And most people try to um, try to put those rules into place, and they try to obtain performance. So setting up the rules is not so hard. It's the administration of it that you really need to look at because that's difficult. Can you give some uh, recent examples maybe of businesses whose uh, aggressive business practices may have fostered a culture that ultimately led to harassment claims? Sure. And, and again, I, I think that it's really obvious if you look at it. There's a company called American Apparel, um, which had a uh, CEO named Dove Charney. And um, he went on 60 Minutes TV talking about uh, how clothes are sexy and his organization is uh, therefore a sexy organization. It's known that this is somebody... Uh, and remember, this is an ex- this was before they fell because of this, an extremely popular, extremely successful organization. Um, Dove Charney would come to uh, board meetings wearing speedos. Uh, it was known within the company that he's dating women within uh, within the company, claiming that it was a culture that would foster the kind of high fashion that he wants to put together. Um, simultaneously, when the company's finances slipped a little bit, the board turned on Dove Charney and got him out of there. And uh, the members of the board that uh, that represented the banks and the financiers kicked Charney out. Um, American Apparel is no more. It fell completely because of this. So you see... Um, you see lots of examples of this out th- out there, which which shouldn't be surprising. Uh, you know, I- I'll I'll talk a little bit uh, uh, about Fox News, which really the start of this recently. Everybody's talking about Harvey Weinstein, but it really started um, with Fox News, and it started with Gretchen Carlson. Um, taking aim at Roger Ailes and once that occurred um, everything started falling out of after that and you had the head of their sports division um, being pulled out of his his office uh, you know their their biggest anchor was uh, Bill O'Reilly and when you look at the notion of is there anybody too big to fall you would think it would be Bill O'Reilly his uh-huh. ratings were not only great, but he was the anchor for every for everything on that lineup, um, and he couldn't survive the pressure. So, 
uh, it, it, there are lots of external factors that are making this almost a public sport now. So those are two companies that you can look at that are pretty stark. Well, with this recent flood of accusations against top-level executives, it's particularly in the entertainment industry. Um, so what's behind this wave? Well, if you look at the entertainment uh, industry, uh, since 1931, uh, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary had something called the casting couch. So that's been a term <laughs> in American parlance since 1931. So nobody ought to be surprised that you've got casting couches in the entertainment um, industry because everybody there is so popular and we and we as a nation care so much about you know gossip of 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 the same people that we read about when they have children in divorces in people magazine now we're reading uh about sexual harassment there so that's why we are looking at this at this industry um and some of the examples actually are are going all all over the map uh this will this will identify the date of this particular broadcast this morning al franken the uh you know really a liberal standard bearer a, a 2003 photograph of him jokingly he says um, putting his hands on the breast of a sleeping uh, co-entertainer at a USO show. That photo showed up today, and the Senate Ethics Committee is going to start looking at him. So the reason that we're hearing about this so much from, um, you name it, from him, from movie stars, from Weinstein, is because there's the public interest in names that we know. But make no mistake about it, the exact same thing is happening at the grocery chain that has got executives and the question is who's going to be assigned as a woman uh, who who's going to be assigned as a manager in a given branch and mm -hmm. there are sexual predator managers in that industry and in the hotel industry and in the manufacturing industry and in the service industry so we're seeing it in the entertainment industry because they're names that we know and recognize but again this is everywhere and the the obligation to train about sexual harassment has been on the books since 1964 it's the rules are not hard keep your hands off of other people it's just the rules are not hard and people aren't getting it and and uh so uh, steve we're hearing about in the entertainment industry i don't think it's either limited or really concentrated there all right let's talk uh, a little bit about what hr managers could do so if you're an hr manager and you find that uh words and actions of uh, one of your top executives is jeopardizing your goal of a workplace culture that's free of harassment, uh, what can you do other than look for a new job? Well, so first, it's really important when we identify workplace harassment, uh, we're talking about more than what's been hitting the headlines recently, which is really sexual assault uh, more than it's sexual harassment. So the question is, um, so you're looking, you're looking around, usually the signs that you will see are not of these assaults, but the signs that you will see is executives 
um, you know, you, you, you see that there's an executive who is dating a subordinate. You will see that there is um, an executive who, when um, typically he, but it could be a she as well, um, when they are you know, going out to meetings or only bringing uh, members of the same gender with them and are ignoring members of the, of the other gender when they come with them. When the HR manager sees that in order to do their job, they need to remedy the harassment at the top. Because if harassment is allowed to exist and thrive visibly at the top, the managers beneath that see it and they will model it. They're already predisposed to model it because that has been kind of the social pattern for centuries. Uh, and so they will. So if you don't stop it at the top, um, it's not going to go away. So um, the first, so the first question that the HR manager needs to needs to identify is is are they empowered to do that? If they're not empowered to do that, they're not going to be able to really do the job. It's it's just a ne- it's just a necessary step. How do you do it? Of course, you try to do it in a wise kind of way, where you know first you go to that um, first maybe you go to that executive privately and say, we've got an issue over here and we need to remedy the issue. Uh, It's probably an error uh, to kind of publicly call a top executive out. You've got to be a a little bit wiser about that. Um, And I think that you've got to set up a culture that protects you when you are doing that. How do you accomplish that? It can be very difficult. One of the tools that sometimes people use is bringing in outside people. Um, you know, ordinarily, an HR department will want, the, will want to have the ability to investigate, make a finding, and remedy. So, you know, you need to have the whole package. You need to have policies. You need to have a manner in which people can report and complain to you. You have to have an investigative mechanism, and you have to have a mechanism to remedy it. If the alleged perpetrator is just too highly placed for an HR manager to touch, this is a place where maybe you bring in somebody from the outside, outside investigator, and you've got a choice then too. If you bring out an attorney to do it, then you've got the choice that you can make later as to whether it's going to be a privileged confidential investigation or whether it's an open mm-hmm. investigation. Um, because, look, I mean, if it's your CEO who's engaging in this kind of uh, behavior, um, the organization is going to have to figure out how it's going to deal with it. Is it going to deal with it publicly or privately? But somehow it is going to have to deal with it. So sometimes if you don't have other political cover, uh, you go to the outside to do it. Uh, it's become much more significant now because sexual harassment and reviewing sexual harassment has become a public sport. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I want to say that there are pressures in both directions. Let me give you an example. There's uh, uh, Dean Chadri at University of California Bolt School of Law. Dean of the School of Law, who made $437,000 a year. That's his salary. So um, his habit was to hug his assistant 
He says a couple of times a week. She says every day. And he says this was my way of just showing how much I appreciated her. And she never complained. When she finally did complain, she went to HR and she uh, said, I felt like a prisoner every day when this was happening to me. I felt powerless to stop him. How could I stop the dean of the law school from hugging me? So he makes the complaint. And it's investigated. Uh, and this is the discipline that was given to Chowdhury. One, he had to apologize to her. Two, he had to take harassment training. And three, he had to give up 10% of his salary, $43,700. So if you look at the technical rules, that a response to a harassment complaint has got to be reasonably calculated to prevent the behavior from occurring in the future. That's really the test. That's what you're trying to do. And to, you know, Today we're hearing all of these people calling for folks' um, head and you know, punishment. Punishment really is not the issue. Deterrence and remedy is really where it was. So that's what happened to Chowdhury. Cost him $43,700. Looking at it from the outside, I think that that's a pretty heavy slap, right? Well, that was the remedy that was imposed in, uh, in July. About eight months later, in March... His assistant filed a lawsuit in Alameda County Superior Court. News of that went to the campus. All of a sudden, there were demonstrations around the law school. And faced with that kind of pressure, um, the university took Chowdhury out of his deanship and ultimately took him out of the faculty within a year. Um, And for what it's worth, Chowdhury sued the university at that point, claiming... Caucasian managers, you don't discipline this way because I'm from India, you're disciplining me. So two lawsuits going on, which the university settles with both of them. What's the point I'm trying to get at? That there are pressures on both sides. There's pressure within the organization for the HR person not to do the right thing and maybe bury the harassment. And there's pressure from outside the organization where even after HR has done what it thinks is right, what is the professional thing to do, there's pressure for HR to do more. And I think in both instances, it's the job of HR to figure out what's the remedy that's going to prevent harassment in your organization and see that it doesn't happen again. Not being pressured by executives in the company, not being pressured by the crowd on the street. And because of those dual pressures, it's very hard on HR now. Very hard. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Soplensky, the producer of HR Works. In just a moment, we'll continue with the second half of our interview with Mark. I just wanted to quickly tell you about BLR's 2018 HR Comply Conference, the new name for AEIS. The nation's leading human capital management conference for HR professionals, executives, and in-house counsel. HR Comply will be held November 14 through 16 at the Paris Hotel in Las Vegas. The superior content and expert presenters will help you get ahead of workplace policy updates with a one-stop, all-basis-covered overview of breaking updates and proven best practices. Learn more about HR Comply or reserve your seat now at live.blr.com slash events. Now, back to Steve and Mark. Now, the EEOC 
they have the select task force on the study of harassment in the workplace, and I think they came out with some help, or they thought it was help. Can you talk about that? Sure. You know, at first when I looked at that task force, uh, I was a little bit skeptical of it because it, it, it had all of the hallmarks of a high school play in its, in, in its way. It did not seem like it was a, a serious product when you look at it, but some of their recommendations at the end I think are very useful. Uh, as I said, uh, you know, I've done a hundred harassment um, trainings and people ought to get it after the first time and people still don't get it. So this task force is trying to identify um, what to do about that. And so it is looking at sexual harassment in the work place and and adopting some of the remedies that we're getting in the bullying kind of situation the focus not being on managers or on harassers to stop their behavior but the focus going on employees generally to stand up to this and kind of if you see something say something kind of approach mm -hmm. and empowering um, rank and file employees and letting those rank and file employees that know that they play a role because um, that's really what's different right now that there are none of this behavior is new it really wasn't all that hidden when people talk about this being Weinstein being the uh, best kept secret in Hollywood of course that's an oxymoron it was I'm sorry worst Worst kept secret, best kept secret. Either way, it's not. It's not true. Um, you know, there were. Uh, it was. It, it was pointed out that 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 on an award show in 2013, uh, the the host turned to five of the the five nominees and say, "Congratulations! You don't have to worry about Harvey Weinstein anymore." Um, this is five years ago. People people knew about it, um, and, and there are other examples of that, coming, of that coming out. So up until now, the focus has been on HR professionals, on managers, and trying to direct to perpetrators to change their behaviors. Now this task force is recommending going beyond that so that, so that general employees know that it's part of their job too. And, you know, they've got this uh, new initiative. It's called the It's On Us program. So, again, it sounds a little bit hokey in its own kind, kind of way, and it doesn't sound quite as serious as a task force ought to be. But we need something to make this effective uh, because, again, um, these trainings are it's, – it's, it's pretty obvious um, – what sexual, especially what these sexual assaults are. When you look about sexual harassment per se, remember, it's not always about sexual desire. In fact, it probably is not usually about sexual desire. It's about, it's oftentimes about sexual antipathy. Um, but in all of these instances, the managers know what's going on. The perpetrator knows what's going on. The victim knows what's going on. It's time to widen the circle, says this task force, to the other employees to know what's going on, and maybe we can stop it. All right, thanks. Now, <clears throat> you've mentioned um, harassment and assault a couple of times. Can you clarify for us what the sure. distinction is? 
Sure. Um, so first of all, um, a threat of a touching uh, is an assault, and a touching is a battery. So let me just say that that's a little bit law 101. So, so uh, what we are hearing about um, making uh, sexual advances with a threat uh, that you won't, you won't get the next part, you won't get the next job if you don't succumb. Examples I used to give is a manager who goes to a subordinate and says, I've got two uh, annual reviews for you. I got this, this medium one I can give you now or this excellent one that I'll give you in my hotel room if you want to come up. These are classic examples of what's called quid pro quo harassment. This for that harassment. And so when we think about this whole notion that, that you will allow me to have uh, my way with you with sexual touching, which is an assault, right? If um, and, and if you do, there's a reward for you in the workplace. That's what I'm talking about as an assault. On the other hand, um, you know, if you've got uh, if if you've got a workplace where anytime a woman comes in the in, uh, in on the production floor, all the guys are going to tell the raunchiest jokes they know in order to gross that woman out. That's an example of sexual harassment. Um, somebody having uh, uh, nude pictures um, on their, you know, on their wall, so that when somebody wants, needs to come in and talk to the supervisors, they've got to see, uh, you know, a Playboy photo or, you know, somebody a a a, a busty, a bikini-clad babe on the wall behind them. These are examples of harassment. Um, uh, I know that. Uh, um, you know, uh, a woman knows that every time they're going to pass a certain su- supervisor, that supervisor is going to make some kind of sexual crack about them. And because of that, this woman is not going to walk that corridor if they see that guy over there. They are going to go the long way around the building in order to get where they want to go because they don't want to, to um, be confronted that way. Harassment, because it creates a pervasive attitude, not assault. Um, every time a woman passes by, a guy is going to stand up and block block the pathway so that so that she's got to brush up against him um, or 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 kind of slither out of his way. These are all examples of harassment. Um, it has to be a serious harassment or a pervasive harassment. So again. Um, we've got to be logical about this. Saying to, to a woman once, um, man, that's a great dress, is fine. If you do it every single day, so Monday, that's a great dress. Tuesday, man, you look great in those shoes. Uh, Wednesday, you ought to wear high heels more. You look wonderful in them. Thursday, you smell great today. Every, any one of those comments, once in a month, probably okay. Doing it every day becomes pervasive harassment. And if you look at if you look at what's really going on, there's a great deal more of that harassment in the workplace than there is the sexual assault type. Um, so um, that's why I say um, we need to keep we need to keep that distinction clear, especially looking at what's going on in the news today where everything that we're hearing about as sexual harassment 
is really a sexual assault. The photo of Al Franken as a joke, um, um, putting his hands on the breast of a sleeping co-worker and taking a picture of that, it's an assault. He's got, he's got no business putting his hands on somebody else's breast. So I hard to make it more straightforward than that. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Now, if HR wanted to uh, do an audit of the company practices or some kind of survey to see about the harassment, um, what steps would you recommend? And again, um, should they involve an attorney? So the danger over here is... Um, in the absence of having an attorney involved, what you discover and what you find, um, you might have to produce it in a later lawsuit. So a company does this kind of audit, finds out that 25% of the women there think that they have been harassed. The next month, one woman brings a harassment claim and it's in court. So they say, okay, you did a study give me the study. So there's a danger there. If the company has got to produce, I mean, did you know that 25% of your workforce claims they were harassed? Yes, I did. And legally, that might not come in otherwise. There's a term we've heard about, this hashtag, this Me Too um, harassment. And legally, in court, only certain Me Too harassment will be allowed into evidence, right? So if you've got a manager at a, at a um, hotel chain um, in, uh, in San Francisco who claims that they were harassed, and there's a manager of that same hotel chain in Atlanta who says, I was harassed too, um, that Atlanta evidence might not necessarily come in. The San Francisco plaintiff is going to have to first prove that the same people were involved, that it was part of a pattern. So, so um, me too. Uh, uh, the way the parlance is really laid out right now is not what is what is um, the legal notion out there, but it, but it, but it's a pretty serious issue as we are looking at it. And HR needs to try to remedy this uh, any chance that they can get. So you've, uh, you've advised, you've arbitrated, you've defended many, many cases involving harassment. What are the biggest uh, and costliest mistakes that HR makes? So um, I think that, that the first one is not getting the information that they need. So you will oftentimes see an instance that a complaint of harassment stops at the local, at the, at the first-line supervisor level. HR doesn't find out about it until there's three or four different complaints and now HR can't deal with it. So one of the things that HR needs to do is to make sure that the supervisors and managers know that they need to report any complaints of harassment over to HR. HR can decide to deal with it or not to deal with it, but only HR is going to know whether um, the alleged perpetrator uh, under a different supervisor a year before had the same kinds of complaints and under mm-hmm. a different supervisor a year before, same kind of complaint. So each of these supervisors thinks that it's just a one-time deal. There's got to be somebody central who knows otherwise. That's number one. 
Um, number two, you need to set up a reporting system that um, is going to be welcome by employees. If, if you've got a reporting system and you find out that employees are not comfortable using it because there's a fear of retaliation, then your reporting system will go absolutely nowhere. And um, I often say that, that um, you know, somebody might accidentally engage in discrimination. You don't accidentally engage in retaliation. Uh, and so uh, retaliation is one of the few places where when I give recommendations uh, and when I give trainings to companies, I'll often say this is, this, is the one, this is the one area where if anybody asks my recommendation and I find out that you retaliated against somebody, I'm going to say terminate. Because, um, you know, again, maybe you didn't understand that this glamour photo that you made of your wife in a... In a uh, in a very sultry, seductive pose that you have on your desk. You may not understand that that's viewed to be a harassing photo. You think it's your favorite picture of your wife. And so now that there is a complaint and now you understand it offends people, so take it down and I'm willing to accept that, company willing to accept that as a mistake. If you then target the people who made the complaint against you and retaliate against them, a whole slew of things is going to happen. First of all, that's intentional conduct. Companies got very little by way of defense, number one. Number two, if the company allows that kind of retaliation to come up, nobody is ever going to complain to HR again. They're going to go straight to the EEOC, and that's not what you want to have done. So you want to have a complaint process that's open that way, you have to have an investigation process that the victim feels, the alleged victim, feels comfortable in pursuing. And then at the end, uh, you got to close the loop. This is what's hard uh, for a lot of companies. Uh, in fact, take a complaint and they take the complaint seriously and they investigate it and they impose some discipline. But, you know, they never go back to the complainant. And they never tell the complainant what's going on. So the complainant thinks that they've made a complaint of harassment and it just fell under deaf ears. So you've done everything right except close the loop. So I think that that kind of holistic system is what is important for, for an HR professional to put into place. Mark, this is all great, very helpful. Uh, any final recommendations for HR to sum this all up? Well, just that life is going to become more difficult. Uh, the newest um, guidelines, not the task force, but the newest EEOC guidelines are um, becoming more aggressive in saying that gender identity and transgender identity is a form of um, sex discrimination and sex harassment, which is prohibited by um, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In other words... Um, when you discriminate against a transgender person, you're basically saying that's a guy and he ought to be behaving like a guy or that's a woman and she should be behaving like a woman. So you really are um, engaging in the discrimination or harassment on the basis of gender, says the EEOC. So you've got to kind of broaden your thinking and and. It's it's difficult for it's difficult to get your head around that. It's 
it's it's difficult having your your lead salesperson Jack leave work on Friday wearing wearing a suit and tie, and he becomes Jack She becomes Jacqueline um, and shows up after a two week vacation wearing a dress, hose, and heels, and and you have to be able to accept that the way. We have been able to accept lots of other things in the workplace over the last 50 years where at the beginning we were going to say it wasn't going to happen. We also have twin trends that are going on where there's a lot more discussion of sex and sexuality in the office. So so you are seeing a lot more of, of the kind of discussion at work that you're going to try to monitor. And at the same time, you've got this public sense that, that the workplace has got to be 100% clean when it comes to not engaging in sexual harassment. So we're becoming looser in some ways and more puritanical in other ways. And HR is standing in the middle trying to um, withstand being buffeted by these opposing forces. So thank God that there's uh, HR people out there. I sometimes feel that, that, that we are the honest brokers uh, for society. So, so uh, uh, kudos to all of you who are listening to this. Well, thank God also that we've got good, uh, good advice coming from, from our employment attorneys. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Mark. Uh, we appreciate these uh, insights. Thank you. So, listeners, please let me know what HR work should cover next. S. Bruce at blr.com. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Bruce for HR Works. <laughs>